In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the prophet Micah for the last time, at least for a little while, chapter 7. In this final chapter, the prophet laments the corrupt state of society and highlights the prevalence of deceit and oppression and untrustworthiness among people. Amid this darkness, Micah expresses unwavering trust in God's faithfulness and mercy, encouraging hope in his divine redemption. This chapter contrasts the flaws of humanity with the consistency and constancy of God's character, emphasizing his forgiveness and his ability to restore. Ultimately, it ends the whole prophecy on a note of assurance, expressing confidence in God's eventual vindication and his promise to shepherd his people with compassion and leading them to a place of restoration and prosperity. Good morning and blessed Advent. Today is Friday, December 8th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is sponsored in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Do me a favor, go to their website, lhfmissions.org, and learn more about their translating and publishing work and how they can serve you and your ministry. Well, we're live this morning, so remember that you can call in with your comments or questions to 800-730-2727. You can also email them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can send me a Facebook message. Any of these methods can get your comment or your question out on the air. But for right now, let's go ahead and welcome our guest to the program. It's the Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer, pastor of Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Good morning, Pastor Ketchelmeyer. Welcome back to the program. Oh, it is wonderful to be here, Pastor Boo. Well, I know that you are a busy guy, as all pastors are this time of year, so I'm glad that you're taking some time out to help us wrap up the prophecy of Micah. Uh, I chose it for a very good reason to talk about during Advent, because, well, it's looking forward to the future, just as every good Christian should be doing right now. This is this has been a blessing to to be here. I, I just recently was uh, serving at... Uh, Kaiser Slaughter and Evangelical Lutheran Church in Germany. And so now I'm back here in the States and ready to talk about Micah. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, uh, I'll, you'll have to tell us a bit more about that. But before you do, go ahead and start our time off together in prayer, please. All right. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we give thanks to you through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, who is our hope and our salvation. We thank you, O Lord, for giving us the gift of life and the gift of eternal life. We pray, O Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us to open our eyes to see Jesus, to open our ears to hear his voice clearly, and to open our hearts that we would trust all of the promises you have made that are fulfilled in him. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, normally I like to ask uh, guests, if they haven't been on for a little while, what they're up to. It sounds like you've been up to quite a bit. Uh, what's the situation here? You say you just returned from Germany. 
Yes, I did. <laughs> so yeah, I, I was I had the the blessing and the opportunity to serve at Kaiser Slautern Evangelical Lutheran Church while uh, Pastor Jensen, Nathaniel Jensen, was back in the states. That's one of our missionary congregations over there in Germany, uh, serving a lot of our American uh, citizens who are serving either in the military directly or contractors over there. So uh, Pastor Jensen's been serving there for uh, I think about two years now, but he was able to come back to the states and talk about the wonderful ministry that he's doing and the outreach he's doing there uh, while I, I took his place there for him uh, there in Germany. So that was such a blessing. I think there's around like 50,000 Americans in that area, uh, English speaking. Wow. So this is an English speaking congregation uh, that uh, Pastor Jensen, of course, is an LCMS pastor, uh, missionary pastor there. So it was such a blessing. And then this Sunday, I, I'm being installed here at Crown of Life Lutheran Church here in uh, San Antonio as associate pastor, the senior pastor here. Here is uh, Pastor Mark Bars, who has also been uh, a guest on KFUO uh, throughout the years, too. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, and I know you're also on other podcasts and other radio shows and busy, busy guy. Happy to have you. I tell you what, though, why don't we just dive right in? Because, well, the first, I guess most of Chapter 7 is going to be a, a lament psalm, and, and we're going to get into that. But it might be a good idea to let people know where we've been, because in chapter 5, we got all kinds of hope, a remnant shall be delivered, and all this great stuff. And then chapter 6 goes back into the indictment of the Lord. What else should people know as we move our way into the very last chapter of this book? Well, the, the opening of a chapter itself is, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth. I mean, give ear. Uh, listen to what the Lord God has to say. I mean, Isaiah, of course, a contemporary, is going to be writing in the same kind of a way that creation itself should listen to the Creator. And in particular, you have a very strong law statements that are coming out in chapter one, for the Lord is coming out of his place. And what is he going to do? He's going to come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. This is all the idolatry. That's the false worship without God's word. That's where people imagine God to be what they want him to be. And so that's why they worship false images. It's, a, it's an imagination that comes from their corrupted heart. So God will put an end to idolatry and restore once again true worship, which of course is faith in a son. But in order to do that, you have to have the law first. So chapter one opens up with this, the transgression of Jacob, the sins of the house of Israel. And what, of course, is the transgression of Jacob? Well, it's Samaria, where they're doing false worship. What's the high places of Judah? Well, it's Jerusalem, where the temple has gone astray. And they're not trusting in the promise of God that are uh, fulfilled in the son, the birth of the boy of joy in Bethlehem. And so chapter one will open up with that lament, and you talk about the laments uh, and the limits in chapter seven, but that focal passage of the entire book of Micah is chapter five, in which we look to Bethlehem, the one from which the son will come, the ruler for Israel, the one who will be shepherd, and the one who will bring peace. Not peace as the world brings, but peace in the conscience, peace before God, that because of the personal work of Christ, the Son of Mary, the only begotten Son of the Father from all eternity, that we now have favor with God and we stand righteous in his righteousness that's received through faith. So that's going to be the key. And here in chapter 7, you'll have the laments, you'll have the heavy law, but it will end on that note of the sweet gospel and the hope of salvation that we have. 
Uh, this was the, the end of the book of Genesis, as you were looking for that hope uh, when Jacob was about ready to rest in peace, uh, to die in this life in faith. He says, I hope for your salvation, O Yahweh. Uh, that's a Genesis chapter 49, verse 18. And we'll see that Micah the prophet, of course, is speaking in unison of voice with Jacob and waiting and anticipating the hope of salvation. So every time we have the natural salvation or the title savior or the action saving, this is all pointing to the personal work of Christ who takes upon the human nature, born of the virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born in Bethlehem, and then crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem for our sins and risen for our righteousness and now stands as our high priest. And he's the one who is that one mediator between God and man who gives us hope in the life to come. So our hope is always in Jesus. Indeed, indeed. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into the text itself, though, because it begins with a very rarely used cry of lament. He starts off by saying, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are, are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul, thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to Yahweh. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. That's the end of verse 7 where we're going to stop for a moment. Going all the way back to the top, woe is me. Um, from what I understand and what I've read, that's found only one other place in Job chapter 10. If I am guilty, woe is me, Job says. Uh, <laughs> is he talking for himself or is he speaking on sort of as a, as a, um, on behalf of all the people? A synecdoche is what I was trying to think of. Is he, is he speaking on behalf of everybody? Yeah, that's a good question. In the Old Testament, what you will see is the prophets, of course, are kind of that go-between. They're a picture of the mediation that Christ brings. Christ himself, of course, is the true prophet. So anytime we see a picture of a prophet being sent, a human being, a man placed into that prophetic office, this is always pointing toward the incarnation. When the Father will send forth his Son, God sends forth the Word. He's the messenger of God. He is the Word incarnate. And so Jesus, of course, is the true prophet. And so in that, that role of mediation, the prophet will speak the Word of Yahweh to the people of God so that they can hear clearly the voice of God. But at the same time, he will speak the word of the people to God. And so here you have one who says, woe is me, uh, that I am confessing my own sin as a human being, for there is only one who has no sin. The only one with no sin is Jesus. He alone is holy. And he's the one who knew no sin, 
but he becomes sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So when you look at all the prophets of old, we're always waiting for one who is greater than all the prophets or the kings of old, one who is greater, or the priest of old, one who is greater, or of course, even the temple, you're looking for one who is greater. And Jesus is always the one who's greater. But here he's confessing these sins. And ultimately, this is what Jesus does when Jesus takes upon our sins on the cross. Uh, he has no sin, but he takes our sin. And so this is why Jesus prays with us in the Lord's Prayer, saying, Our Father. The only reason we can say our Father is because Jesus is the true begotten Son, the only begotten God. There is no other who is of God, uh, essence of the divine essence, God of God, true God, of true God and begotten, not made. But Jesus can say our Father, and we, by baptism, we have that promise and that gift of being adopted children so we can pray with Jesus, our Father. But then he says, forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven those who trespass against us. That Jesus himself is speaking with us as high priest, that he's taking upon our sin as if it were his own so that he can bestow on us his righteousness, and by faith it is as if it is our own. So what you have here is the prophet taking that understanding that the prophet himself, Micah, uh, which technically technically means who is uh, like Yahweh. I mean, so Yah, the shortened form of Yahweh, but who is like Yah? Uh, the prophet himself is not Yahweh. Uh, he is uh, a human being just like the rest of us. And so he confesses that sin. In fact, he's looking at all humanity and even the godly has perished from the earth. There is none, not one who is upright among mankind. Uh, they are all liars. And so this is the same understanding that we have that as humanity, we all stand condemned. We have inherited original sin from our parents. Adam and Eve. And so here the prophet is not boasting of his sinlessness over us, uh, as if he's a Pharisee who's trying to judge us according to his own self-righteousness. Uh, that's why the Pharisees are not fair, you see, because they're always putting us under judgment because we never meet their righteousness. But this is one who's saying that he is part of humanity, that we are confessing together that we are sinners, we are unclean, we are unholy, and we need one who will come to save us. But we we don't want to put our, our trust in humanity, our trust in a neighbor, a trust in a friend, a prince, or anything like that, because that's not where our trust is going to be. But he, he's talking about the, the humanity, there is evil, that is the sinful nature, that we are inclined to sin by, by nature because it's corrupted. We are enemies of God. We don't want to hear God's word. But yet God, in his mercy and his graciousness, sends a prophet to speak the word so that we would listen and we would learn from God's word. And even though the princes and the judges uh, are human, they, they are corrupt, they misuse, they abuse the office they've been given. Uh, even a prophet who uh, is placed as a watchman is supposed to proclaim God's word. And this is the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet. A false prophet preaches his own word his own imagination, how he imagines that God would be apart from the revealed knowledge of salvation found in Jesus. So here the prophet is speaking that woe, saying that I'm part of humanity, that harsh law, that the, the law brings the knowledge of sin. And then at the same time, he ends on that note saying, but, but as for me, I will look to Yahweh. So this is the, the role of the prophet to see Yahweh, to see Yahweh as he truly is, and that is merciful, compassionate, gracious, and steadfast in his love toward us, all for the sake of his son. So this is, I will wait for the God of my salvation. Uh, that goes back to that text in Genesis chapter 49, verse 18, where Jacob has taught his sons to wait for the salvation of 
God, to wait for the salvation of Yahweh. And so we're waiting for the son, the one who was promised from the beginning, the seed that's going to crush the serpent's head, the offspring of the virgin. And so his, this is the one we are looking to. So we acknowledge our own sin because the law will bring that knowledge. But then we, we rejoice in the gospel. We look to the God of our salvation, and this is my God, will I hear? So we're, we're listening, and we're learning, and we're hearing that good word, the good news that's fulfilled in Jesus. As I listen to how you explain you know, his position in terms, especially when it comes to there are moments where he speaks to the people on behalf of God, and of course there are moments when he speaks to God on behalf of the people— and that really helps us understand who he's speaking for. So he says, woe is me, and that certainly includes him, but it includes the rest of the people too. We think of Micah chapter 6, you know, part of that indictment is you shall you shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives, but you won't have any oil. You shall tread grapes, but you're not going to drink wine. And he picks that up. He's like, I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered and when the grapes have been gleaned, but there's no cluster to eat, no fig ripe that my soul desires. It's this repentance and acknowledgement on behalf of himself, but also the people. And the reason why I want to highlight that part of what you said is because, very naturally, it reminds me of the divine service, right? And then this is especially apparent in those congregations where perhaps they have um, – the the pastor who typically will face the 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 reredos or the altar and then turn around and talk to the people sometimes and turn around and talk toward God you can really see that distinction so we still have that position today in terms of joining in with our people isn't that something that you would agree with or what yes do you yes definitely that 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 image that picture is wonderful uh, that we have uh, traditionally where the pastor looks at the, the congregation and speaks the words of Jesus but when the pastor is in a, a state or a stance of petition in prayer uh, he turns around in proclamation he turns to the people so yes uh, that praise of God he turns and faces uh, with the congregation toward God but then we speaks behalf of God like for instance the words of institution uh, that's why we have switched to that freestanding altar so that we can look at the people and we can speak the words of good news this is my body which is given for you uh, this is my blood which is shed for you the blood of the New Testament so that that kind of that that distinction between the pastor speaking with the people, confessing sins. Uh, so when we begin the divine liturgy and we confess that, woe is me, uh, I'm a sinner. You know, I, uh, I have not loved God as I should. I have not loved my neighbor as I should. I am a poor and miserable sinner. And the pastor joins in with that, just like the prophets do. But this is what's so unique in the incarnation is Jesus who knew no sin. He does this as the true high priest. He is the one who takes upon our sin upon himself. So he is the very word of God, the eternal word of God, the essential word of God, who takes upon flesh and blood. So he speaks to us God's word of blessing. But then he also takes all of the sin that is made known through the proclamation of the law. He is that lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he's the one that we always want to orientate our ourselves toward is that we want to look to him. And so that's uh, verse seven is I will look to Yahweh. I'm going to look at the one who is the visible image of the invisible God. That's the son. If you want to know the true God, you have to look to Jesus. There is no other name under heaven 
whereby we must be saved. If you don't look at Jesus, then you don't know the true God. Uh, a God apart from Jesus is a God of, of wrath. It is a God that is not appeased. It's a God that's a false God. I mean, you can pretend like it's a domesticated deity, that you can make him do what you want him to do, uh, but that's not the true God. That's a false God. So if you want to know the true God, you look to the Son. He's the one who alone makes satisfaction for sin. He alone makes the atonement in his blood. So to see the Father is to see the Son. When we get to verse 7, which is what you were focusing on in terms of looking to Yahweh, it kind of the, the language itself gives me the sense of Joshua who says, as for me and my household, we'll serve Yahweh. He says, but as for me, I will look to Yahweh, kind of contrasting all of those watchmen who were failing at their job. I will wait for the God of my salvation, uh, reflecting back a lot of the places where the scriptures say it's good that one should wait for the Lord, and my God will hear me. That confidence in verse 7 is is really, I think, something for us to cling to because, as you said, we get to also look toward the God of our salvation, and we get to see him face-to-face because he's come in Jesus now, which makes us in a better position of Micah, who saw him only at a distance. But God is going to answer prayers. It's a confession of trust that is typical to lament psalms, but still we have the lament. There's nothing wrong with lamenting. There's nothing wrong with recognizing the weary world around us. But it's that verse 7, at least in this context, that's so important. Remember who we can look to. Uh, I think that's – I appreciate your point there. Yeah, and that's the role of a watchman. I mean, so that's a title that's used for a prophet as a, as a prophet is supposed to be watching. He's supposed to be watching for the coming of the Christ. I mean, ever since the beginning with that promise to Eve that the virgin is going to conceive and bear a son, the offspring, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. So all the prophets from the beginning were to proclaim Christ and him crucified and him risen for our righteousness. So as a prophet, he's a watchman that's watching. He's waiting. He's anticipating that these promises will be fulfilled. Uh, and the hope, of course, is they'll be fulfilled sooner than later. Uh, but like, you know, Micah did not see in his day the fulfillment of the baby boy of joy being born in Bethlehem. But yet he foretold it. He foresaw it. He saw off from the distance that it was it was coming. It, he was coming. The, the coming one is coming. And uh, he rejoiced in it. Uh, if we would say that in verses 1 through 7 that the prophet Micah is speaking on behalf of the whole nation, including himself, some have said that the following verses, um, at least beginning with verse 8, is really him speaking in the personage of the city of Zion, at least 8 through 10, which is what we're going to hear right now. I, I'm looking forward to hearing what our guest has to say. I'll read it starting with verse 8 from the ESV. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, Yahweh will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of Yahweh because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for him. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is Yahweh your God? My eyes will look upon her and now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Okay, so rejoice! Don't, 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 don't rejoice over me, enemy, when I fall, because I'm getting back up again. 
I think every Christian worth their salt's thinking about Jesus dying and rising again, but I bet there are a bunch of layers. Take us through this, brother. Well, I think if you want to start right there, obviously the, the, the layers there that Jerusalem itself must be destroyed. The temple in Jerusalem must be destroyed. And of course, in the day of Micah or Isaiah or Jeremiah, when they're saying this is going to happen, the temple is going to be destroyed. Uh, you know, it, it just it seems like that just can't be. You know, we're, we're the holy people of God. You know, uh, once saved, always saved. This could never happen to us. Right. <laughs> we're the holy people. It's the holy temple. And then, of course, when the temple is destroyed, it's well, has God forsaken us? And that's always a picture and image of Christ. The Christ himself says, uses that same image of the temple, that you will destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up again. And that's the whole big thing that he's, well, now they claim uh, falsely that Jesus is threatening to destroy the temple. Well, the issue is the temple is always a picture of the incarnation. It's the promised place of God's presence. So now after the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, we, we don't have that temple in Jerusalem anymore that's destroyed in 70 AD so that we can be clear that wherever two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, he is their presence. So how do we have access to the Father through the Son? It's where the name of Jesus is proclaimed with his word and with his sacrament. And so, yes, you have this understanding when, when Jerusalem is destroyed, it's as if God has forgotten or even forsaken Abraham and the promise that he made. And when Jerusalem lays to waste, it's like, okay, well, where's their God? It becomes a mockery. It's the same thing with Jesus on the cross, of course, uh, when they mock Jesus on the cross. Well, he said uh, that, that God is uh, his favored, you know, that he said he's the Messiah. Let's see if God saves him. And so that's the whole idea that they're, they're mocking Jesus saying, well, look, he died. Therefore, we know that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, so he can't be the Messiah. So they're mocking him. Uh, the enemies, those who despise the, the promise of God, who reject the word of God and resist the work of the Holy Spirit. But then the resurrection of Jesus, of course, you have the vindication. And you have a picture of that in the Old Testament when the temple is destroyed and the, the leaders, the priests and the kings, they are taken into exile into Babylon. And then when you do have a rebuilding of the temple, uh, when you come back out of exile under Cyrus, it, it, it's, it's a foretelling of, look, the temple's destroyed and it's going to be rebuilt. It's, it's the imagery of death and resurrection. And so you have that, of course, always a picture of Jesus who will die for our sins. But even the fact that the temple in Jerusalem had to be destroyed was because it was, it was like no, no different than any other pagan temple because no longer was the name of Jesus being proclaimed there. No longer was the hope and the salvation that Yahweh provides. Instead, the people were caught up in the worship of the world, in a, a man-made method of trying to make God merciful, trying to worship in the style of their contemporaries and apart from God's word. So the temple itself in Jerusalem becomes like any of the other pagan temples without the promise of the Messiah. And so it had to be destroyed. And so in the same way, Jesus himself takes upon the sin of the world, so he has to be destroyed. That is, he has to be put down into the ground so that he can come up again. So that's that's always that picture there. But we, we have this imagery, of course, of light and darkness that uh, we, we talk about in the season of, of 
Advent, as we're waiting for the Christmas light, Jesus, who is both light and life, uh, the light no darkness can overcome, that we are waiting and anticipating uh, in these darkened days, these darkened latter days, the light of Christ would shine forth. Because as we walk in his light, as he is in the light, his blood cleanses us from all of our sins. So you have all this picture of, of the light. Jesus is the light of the world. And then he sends the church out as the light of the world, that we would proclaim Christ in the midst of this darkness of death, uh, the darkness of, of deeds uh, of evil, that we would proclaim forgiveness, life and salvation in Jesus. So the enemies are gloating over they've they've destroyed Jerusalem. It's no longer the eternal city. It's, it's come to an end. And so where is Yahweh? Where's your God? Because what you see with your physical eyes is that God's not present. But that's always going to be the issue is that we, we actually see with our ears because we hear the word of God and we believe what we hear because we're seeing the vision of the watchman what the watchman sees. He wants us to see Jesus in the midst of death and destruction, in the midst of suffering and affliction, that we would set our eyes upon Jesus. We can't do that with our physical eyes. We actually do that with our ears when we hear the good news uh, and the promises that are all fulfilled in Jesus. Well, I think that's a good time for us to take a break as we reflect on all the things our guests have shared with us this morning. So folks, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Pastor Phil Boo. I'm your host, and this is Thy Strong Word. With me this morning is the Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer, pastor of Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Well, and before he and I finish up the book of Micah, I just want to remind you again that there are all kinds of ways that you can reach out to me with your feedback, questions, comments, or complaints. That's fine. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. I just love to hear from you. You can also find me on Facebook. And if you are daring enough, it's actually really easy. You can just call into the studio too. A friendly operator, a friendly board operator will answer the phone and get you right on the air. That number is 800-730-2727. Any of these methods can get your comment out in the ether. Well, Pastor, I'm back now, and we're going to talk, well, the rest of Micah chapter 7. Uh, you, anything else you want to cover before we move on to the next segment? 
Well, again, that, that question that the people put of mockery, where is the Lord your God? I mean, that's what the, the people always mock us. Where is he? I don't see him. Uh, it, right. it seems like he's not present or he doesn't have power to do anything. Uh, he's not aware of what's going on in life. And that's always the trick of the devil is the devil wants us to doubt the promises of God. And the devil wants us to sing in unison a voice with the choir of the world saying, where is Yahweh? Where is God? And fall into despair and to doubt. But of course, what the Lord is always doing is he's giving us the word of Jesus, which gives us hope where there is despair and gives us faith where there is doubt. So we always want to set our ears to the word of God, even though we're constantly hearing the words of the world. So it's always that spiritual battle. And so here you have the prophet saying that we will have vindication. Uh, and so you'll see these things will happen. I mean, e even like when I was in Germany, it just it seems so sad. You, you look at the, the once wonderful lands of the Reformation and you look there and you say, well, what has happened 500 years later? Where, where where did the gospel go? Where are all the people rejoicing in the doctrine of justification through faith alone, that uh, we are emphasizing the person and work of Christ alone? I mean, what happened to the land in, in 500 years? But that's the darkness of the world. And and as Luther says, you know, it's a, the, the gospel is like a rain cloud that kind of it, it's, it's there for a, a time showering. But when the people don't want to hear anymore, it moves on. And so we're always in that state of, learning to listen, learning to believe, and always setting our eyes upon Jesus. So we want to hear what the prophet says when he gives us the harsh word of law that gives us the knowledge of our own sin, but we don't want to stop there. We want to keep listening because we know the whole point is to show us our Savior. So that's what we're waiting for and anticipating. Let us move on. Verse uh, 11, here we go. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to Yahweh our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Not quite the end, but it is the end of that section. So, yeah, back to 11. It really continues what's been going on, you know, in 10. Where is Yahweh your God? Well, my eyes will look upon her now that she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. That is her being the enemies. And then it goes into 11, a day for the building of your walls. Well, uh, hedges, vineyards, walls. I, I, what, what, what are we looking at here? What's going on? Well, I think what we want to see here is the rebuilding of the temple is always pointing towards the resurrection of Christ. And so the destruction of the temple is pointing toward the death of Christ. And when you have the rebuilding of the temple, here's this emphasis that the, the glory days will come. 
things will actually be better than they were before. So yeah, you thought the kingdom of David was great or the kingdom of Solomon was wonderful. Well, wait until you see the kingdom of the Messiah. So this kingdom of Christ is one that extends to the ends of the earth. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended because it's after the, the resurrection of Jesus, he sends out the apostles to the ends of the earth, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth to proclaim the good news, that the warfare has ended, that God himself gives us pardon and peace because of the work of Christ. So when you see the Assyrians and the Egyptians coming uh, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain, this is uh, pointing toward the conversion of the Gentiles. So in the Old Testament, when we're always looking for Christ and what Christ is doing in the Old Testament is always showing forth towards the conversion of the Gentiles, that it's not just for the Jews, but Jews and Gentiles will rejoice together, that he is the hope of the nations. But that won't happen until after the resurrection when he sends the apostles out to proclaim the good news, because faith comes through hearing the word of Jesus. So in the Old Testament, whenever you see this imagery of the conversion of the nations, it's always teaching us clearly the doctrine of justification through faith alone. I mean, what, what, what a clearer testimony can there be than the pagans who have no knowledge of salvation? They have no knowledge of the promise of the seed that's going to crush the serpent's head. They've been blinded by the devil. Uh, they have been stuck in the darkness of their deeds of death. And then they are converted by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so now they are justified. They're declared righteous, not with their own achieved righteousness that they've done with their works, for their works are in darkness. Uh, it's impossible to please God without faith. But now they have the gift of this passive righteousness that's received through faith. So when you see that, you, you rejoice in the doctrine of justification through faith alone in the personal work of Christ alone. I mean, this is echoing what Micah was doing back in chapter four, when technically Micah was just uh, singing in unison of voice the same song that Isaiah was singing about how the kingdom of God, the mountain of God will rise up higher than the other mountains, the other kingdoms of the earth. Because the kingdoms of the earth are in, uh, in league with the devil to try to prevent God's kingdom from coming. But it's God king, God's kingdom comes through the hearing of his word through which the Holy Spirit is given. So Micah back in, in chapter 4 was echoing or literally speaking in unison of voice with Isaiah about how the Gentiles and the nations say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh. <laughs> let us go there. Why? Right. Because out of Zion goes forth the Torah, the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. That's the sending out of the apostles. And so you have, of course, when the word goes out first, you're going to have a war because it's a spiritual battle. Uh, they are in league with the devil. But when God wins that battle through the conversion of the Holy Spirit, then you no longer need the weapons of war. So that's why Isaiah and Micah, therefore, seeing the end of that warfare, well, now there is peace uh, because they have faith. So no longer do they need their, their swords. They can be plowshares. No longer do they need their spears. They can be pruning hooks. Now, that's the opposite of the prophet Joel, who does the opposite, where he's saying, you need, uh, you need spears. Take your pruning hooks and make spears. You need plowshares. I mean, you don't need plowshares. You need the swords, make them the swords because it's a spiritual battle. So with the prophet Joel, it's that, that spiritual fight that's going on where there is a rejecting of the word, a resisting of the Holy Spirit. But when God wins, when conversion is brought, then they are brought into the light. And they're the ones who can rejoice and say to Israel, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And so that conversion there of the nations being brought, people like the Assyrians, people like the Egyptians. I mean, these are kind of like the 
the epitome of those in animosity with God. I mean, the Assyrians are the ones who introduce uh, a worship of the world to King Ahaz, who, who totally deforms the worship at the temple in Jerusalem and sets up an alternate altar uh, in the style of contemporary worship of the Assyrians. Uh, and so you, you have this whole issue going on with the Egyptians uh, in their pagan worship, and they're, they're trying to prevent God's kingdom from coming. But now they come to faith too. And so the, the kingdom of God is extended to the ends of the earth. And so this is all good news. Uh, but you're, you're going to have that word of law that's going to go out first because the Holy Spirit is going to convict, convict the world of sin, uh, convict the world of righteousness, and convict the world of judgment. Uh, but when then that happens through the preaching of the word, then the Holy Spirit can work because now sin has been exposed. And now the Holy Spirit can show forth the Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, I love it. It sounds great. I tell you what, why don't we keep on going in our text? I want to get into the next section. Just a few verses are remaining. Uh, this one, the ESV editors have entitled God's Steadfast Love and Compassion. So we're going to see a, a shift in tone here. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remission of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So, you know, who is a God like you, which is ironic, a pun, right? Because as you've already pointed out, Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. But also we see not only this change in tone, but halfway through, it, it goes from that speaking to the people to speaking to God on behalf of the people. We see that even in these three verses. Yeah, so again, we end on that note of contemplation. So when you have a, a question in the uh, scripture, it's not a question of the prophet doesn't know the answer, right? The, the prophet wants us to think this through. So who is a God like you? And so you want to say in comparison to the so-called gods of the world, the doctrines of demons, how does this compare to the true God? For it's only the true God himself who is the creator of all things. It's only the true God himself who is the redeemer of all things. And the way that he does this is by taking upon creation himself. The father sends forth the son. The, the son assumes the human nature. And so this is how there is a pardoning of iniquity. I mean, so in the ancient world, you know, gods of power and might and gods of strength and gods of war. I mean, gods who say, you make me mad and I'm going to destroy you. Well, yes, if, if you don't have the sun, all you have is the wrath of God because sin provokes God to anger. But it's only in the sun that you can actually see one who pardons iniquity, the one who passes over transgression, uh, the one who actually takes it as if these belong to him. Uh, he's that lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the beast of burden. Uh, he's the one that bears all of our iniquities and our transgressions. So who is a God like this? Well, none of the pagan gods, not one, uh, none of the the false images from the imagination of humanity uh, are, are like the true God, the true God who humbles himself, the true God 
who is uh, humiliated, uh, the true God who is mocked and spit upon and, and beaten and bruised and bloodied all for our sins. I mean, there is no God like this. And so in the ancient world, it was, it was a, a stumbling block. I mean, it's foolishness. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks that your God would come down and instead of destroying everything, your God would quote unquote, if you will, be destroyed. I mean, he's the one who is uh, taken down to the ground like a temple that's destroyed, but then he rises again because he's the one who wounds and heals. He's the one who kills and makes alive. So this whole question of meditation is this is our God. Our God is the one who pardons iniquities. Our God is the one who passes over transgression. Our God is the one who has a remnant. Uh, those are the, the believers, the righteous, the ones who are repentant sinners who trust in the promise of God, that it's not by their own works, it's not by their own methods that they can make God merciful, but it's all about the person and work of Christ. And, and so you have that contemplation, who is a God like this? Because previously we, we saw in verse 14 about how he is to shepherd your people with your staff, uh, the flock of your inheritance. That whole image of, of a shepherd is that we know that Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down this life he lays down his life for the life of his sheep. And that's the image that we had back in Micah chapter 5, where you're looking at this baby boy of joy, that he's the one who should stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh. That's the one who will shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He makes Good Friday good because he takes our sin and gives us life where there is death. And so it's by that that we should have peace. Uh, that's in Isaiah, uh, well, I should say back in, in Micah chapter 5, and ironically, that's when uh, King Herod the Great, so-called great because he kills a lot of people, right? <laughs> a great number of people. But that's when he hears from the, the wise men from the East that there's one who is born king of the Jews, you know, one who is the star of Jacob. And instead of having peace in his conscience and peace in his heart, he is troubled. He's stricken because now he has a challenger to the throne. And so he's going to go and try to wipe out all of the children, all the, the boys that he Hebrew boys who are under two. Um, but it, the irony is Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's the one who comes to bring peace, not as the world does, not uh, peace with the absence of, of the sword, the, the physical sword, but peace in the midst of all these uh, afflictions and sufferings in this world. And so you, you have that whole image. This is our God, one who is a shepherd. He's the one who will shepherd his people. He feeds his people, but not just any shepherd, the good shepherd the one who lays down his life for the sheep, willingly lays it down, and then willingly he takes it back up again for our own good. And this is where the nations shall see this and not be ashamed, uh, that the nations now see the Savior like we do. And the the, um, the those who understand this see this whole reversal uh, of creation. So this is what we're kind of contemplating, the creation of everything, where you have the serpent himself who started this war of words. Did God really say that? But now you have the victory that the, the seed is going to crush the serpent's head and he's going to bite the dust. He's going to lick the dust. He's going to go crawling out of the things of the earth. And, and so you have this victory, and it's all this victory for the sake of bringing restoration to creation in the holy incarnation. And so that's that's what the contemplation is about. That's what the meditation is about. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over transgression? So as we look back on the entire prophecy of Micah, I mean, clearly we see it applies today very much in the sense that 
um, Christ has come just as he has foretold. And we've been talking a lot throughout this whole book about the concept of the now but not yet, which is also something that is important for us to remember, especially during Advent. And you've done a great job of bringing out a lot of uh, salient points. But if you wanted just to tell somebody, you know, what kind of what kind of hope does Micah give for Advent, especially as it comes to a world that is beset by violence and people are always against each other, a lot of the iniquities and oppressions that Micah describes in his day continues to happen today, even though Christ has come. And so we long for that Prince of Peace, and yet we don't have peace yet. Um, how can we comfort the people using Micah about that that whole idea of searching for peace, waiting for peace? Well, I think the issue here is, of course, sin provokes God to anger. So anger is not an attribute of God. God is not anger. Uh, God is, is, he is mercy. He is love and he acts lovingly. He acts mercifully. So it's sin that provokes God to anger. So when you see things happen around us, it, it's, you're, you're calling to question because that's what the devil says is, you know, did God really say that? Uh, did God really say these things? Can you really trust to these promises? And th this is where you look around and the experience tells you externally that it doesn't seem like God is here, that things are getting out of control. It doesn't seem like God is in control. Uh, but we always get that promise that he is, that he's the one who does not retain his anger forever. So as you see things happening where all of a sudden it seems like now God is your enemy and God is trying to destroy you, that he is angry because of your sin, you know that his anger does not last forever. And he delights in his steadfast love, his chesed, his, his, his mercy, his goodness. It's all in Jesus, who is the incarnation. So this is the one who has compassion on us. This is the one who assures us that he has tread our iniquity under his feet, that he's the one who has was pierced in his feet for our sins. And it's by his wounds that we are healed. Our sins are cast out uh, into the depths of the sea. And we have that whole promise that was given to Jacob. Jacob waits for the salvation of Yahweh. And so we wait and we watch. And even though it looks like it's not coming, it looks like it's still darkness, but we are waiting for the morning to shine. And you think about when the sun rises in the morning, it kind of, it's slowly rising over the horizon. And then it begins to have those beams of light begin to shine forth upon the earth. As the sun rises more, it becomes brighter and brighter and brighter. So in the midst of darkness, in the midst of all these trials and tribulations and sorrow and sadness and sin, we know who has the victory. The devil has not won. We, we know the end story. And just like here, we know how the last chapter ends. We know in the book of Micah that, yeah, sin is not good, but we know who is good. And we know who takes care of sin, that he is faithful to Jacob that he is, has a steadfast love that he's shown to Abraham, that these promises given to Adam and Eve, they were handed down through Noah and his sons and through uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then Judah and David, that he is faithful to these things, that he has sworn to our fathers from the days of old. I mean, th these are like the songs of Zechariah and the songs of Mary, where we rejoice that he has not forgotten his oath to our father Abraham that he has raised up for us a horn of salvation. So we, we see how, I mean, if you can imagine the book of Genesis, it opens with life and there's no death. It opens with original righteousness. And then all of a sudden now we're all stuck in this captivity and slavery to original sin. And you have a promise that, well, there's one who's going to crush the serpent's head. 
one who's going to defeat death and the devil. And then you go through chapter four uh, and, and all of a sudden you're seeing, uh, you know, chapter five, you're, you're seeing Cain killing Abel. You're seeing blood being shed. You're seeing the flood. You're seeing destruction. And it's just, you got somebody who is born and then dies, born, dies. I mean, throughout the whole thing from Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, and then to Joseph. And it's just, it ends on the note in Genesis chapter 50. Now Joseph dies. And so you begin with life, you end with death. And that whole Genesis chapters one through 50, as you're waiting and you're anticipating, well, when is he going to come? He's <laughs> not going to come yet. Where is he? And so you're waiting for the one who will bring life where there is death. And then you open up to the book of Exodus. And now you see a baby boy uh, who's going to bring joy. It's Moses. And you say, well, this is surely the one. Well, then, of course, still there's death. And so it's the whole picture through the book of Exodus that God is faithful and God hears the pleas of his people, that he knows our situation. And so this is, this is what brings us great comfort, is that not only does God know these things, not only did God know these things before the beginning of the earth, but we also know from the testimony of scripture that God is actively involved in these things. So when we plead to God and say, look, at, here's the things that are happening in my life. This is the trouble, the tribulation. It's not like we've got to convince him. <laughs> He knows. Mm -hmm. he, he knows. And what we really need is the convincing of ourselves that we know that God works together in the good, uh, for the good, I should say, for the good in all things, for those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. So, so faith holds on to the promises, and that's what gives us the peace, having the peace of Christ in our heart, knowing that if we are right with God, then everything else in life is right. If we are good with God, then the rest of our life is good because we have a Savior who is now a mediator, the one who speaks well of us before the Father constantly. And this is great news. This is good news. This brings great joy into our hearts. Indeed, it really does. Well, we're toward the end of the show, so I'd like to thank my guest, the Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer, pastor now, or getting ready to be for sure, Crown associate pastor at Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Brother, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, it was such a blessing to be here. So next time we get together, we're going to be going into, uh, well, Christmas carols. So, brother, pastor, do you have uh, any famous Advent or Christmas hymns that you just you like above the rest? Oh, I, I love Savior of the Nations Come. And so <laughs> I love that. So this is Ambrose of Milan, right? Well, when I was in Germany on the last Sunday I was there, we went into the city of Trier. And that's actually where Ambrose was born. I mean, so if you can imagine, I, I was in the city where Ambrose was born. Later on, of course, he's Bishop of Milan. But sure. here I am in, in the the, uh, the Western Palace of Constantine, the emperor. And that Trier is also the place in Germany where Athanasius was exiled for two years. So here I am in exile with Athanasius in Trier in that part of <laughs> Germany. So, But Savior of the Nations come is has got to be one of my favorites. It really is. That is that is mine. I think my favorite Advent hymn is going to be O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. But there oh, really yes. are so many. Yes. I've been asking all my guests, and you might be saying, well, why am I asking any of this? Well, folks, come Monday, Thy Strong Word will start a special series called Countdown to Christmas, where for the 10 weekdays leading up to the Nativity, my guests and I will be exploring your favorite Christmas hymns. Well, if your favorite Christmas hymns are in the Tim hymns we've already picked, we're going to talk about the history or the story behind the hymn, then stanza by stanza, 
we'll examine the themes and theology it proclaims according to God's Word. So our first hymn will be on Monday. It's going to be LSB 356, The Angel Gabriel from Heaven Came. The other hymns we'll be covering are O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, O Little Town of Bethlehem, Silent Night, Holy Night, Away in a Manger, It Came Upon the Midnight Clear, O Jesus Christ, Thy Manger Is, O Come, All Ye Faithful, We Praise You, Jesus, at Your Birth, and we'll end the thing with Joy to the World. Not not, not uh, unexpected ending. I think that's one people like at the end when Christmas finally comes. But that's it. So you'll have to tune in for that starting on Monday. It's going to be really great. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word. <laughs>